0: was establishing the boundaries before we actually got to that moment where it was going to be potentially hot or hostile or conflicting. I think as the relationship gets deeper and what things are you doing to deepen the relationship that could help also with those moments where the conversation can get a bit hot, especially in game where you don't have time to air your laundry and you know, you got to put out that fire pretty quick and move on. Well, what have you done to that point that you can manage that moment in terms of deepening the connection within the relationship?
1: Hi, I'm Dan Kerkorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome co-founders of Movement Sports, Great Britain national team coach, Alan Keane, and coach and social entrepreneur, Simon Turner. The duo is here today to discuss coaching in isolation, divergent thinking and power dynamics on staffs, and we talk anger, arrogance, and building resilient players during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches, one of the best ways to help support what we do is by becoming a member of SG+. We now have coaches and staffs from over 40 different countries who are happy to call members, and they get access to SGTV's over 500 detailed breakdown video library by both ourselves and coaches like Stan Van Gundy, Ryan Panone, Martin Schiller, Josh Schertz, and many more, as well as the weekly deep dive newsletter, access to a private coaching community, and much more. For more information, email us at info at slappingglass.com or visit slappingglass.com to sign up today. Thanks for the support. And now, Please enjoy our conversation with coaches Alan Keen
0: and Simon Turner.
1: Guys, thank you very much for making the time for us. We're really excited to have a conversation with you today.
0: Uh, It's a pleasure, Dan. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, looking forward to it, Dan.
1: A lot of stuff we're gonna get to today, off the court, on the court, all that you do with your company movement and then also just what you guys both do individually. But we'd like to start with something that on your guys' website, you have, you know, three kind of key tenants of what you guys do with movement sports. And one of them is no coach should do it alone. And on the site you have too many coaches are working in isolation without the tools and support they need to enhance the well-being of themselves and others. And we thought that'd be an interesting place to start to kind of discuss both what that means to you guys and how that relates to what you both do. So I think just to start, Alan, if we could kick that to you and we'll start from there.
0: Yeah, the thing is, Dan, we're in a very privileged position where through movement, we get to speak with a lot of coaches, as is everybody with the platform of or Zoom. Or, I mean, a lot of coaches are connecting now more than ever. But with the work we're doing through movement, we get to dig down a little bit deeper. We get to understand what goes on in their daily worlds, the challenges they have, the tasks they have to complete just to get on court to coach their players. And some of the work we're doing with our members at the moment, for example, or support clients throughout last season, it's become quickly evident that even if you have a support staff around you, let's say. So even if you have assistant coaches, team managers, SNC, sports, science and medicine staff, there's still an aspect of working in isolation. And what I mean by that is, you know, especially for the head coach, as you navigate your job, your journey, what you have to do on a daily basis, we're finding out from speaking to a lot of coaches. And from my own experience, and a lot of head coaches can relate to this actually, I'm sure, that it can be a bit of a lonely world because you take a lot of what goes on, you take that with you no matter where you go. So if there's you know, one coach, for example, was sharing with me that it's a concern of his going into a game, that the game is being recorded, that the video is being set up, that the media team are available to do their job. And, you know, his attention was going there pre-game as opposed to staying on the game. And that's, so, you know, the assistant coach doesn't worry about that. The physio doesn't worry about that. So it's very easy to say coaches work in isolation when you are the only coach on your team and you have to drive the minibus, you have to wash the kit, you have to fill in the registrations. I think that's an obvious practical element of working in isolation, but actually the one that maybe goes unrecognized is the head coach who's under a lot of pressure and who's working 24-7 with the thoughts and feelings about is everything where it needs to be. So actually being able to disconnect from that and compartmentalize it or not being able to do it, we're back to well the well-being of themselves. And if that's not managed well or supported or provisions are not in place, then actually you kind of fight those battles yourself and you're spinning a lot of plates. So I think on one practical sense, before I hand over to Simon, on one practical element, it's easy to describe coaches working in isolation and all the different things they have to do from a practical standpoint. But also it's the coach that maybe goes unrecognized who has a lot of support staff around them, but actually still works in isolation because of the stresses of being a head coach, the worries about everything being in the right place at the right time, the worry of the results. So all those things impacting the well-being of a head coach may be gone unnoticed to people on the outside, like you and I, who's watching that coach from stands or on TV. Simon, I'll pass over to you to think a bit deeper. Well, Alan, one of the things I
2: like about working with you is you're on the ground, you're talking with coaches. Anyone who knows you or follows you on Twitter knows you to talk coaching anytime with anyone. My perspective is different. I'm looking at the bigger picture here. So going back a few years, we... We're operating in a time of stability. And now we're moving from that stable context into a really volatile context. So, technology has sped up the pace of change. And then you add COVID, you add Me Too, you add Black Lives Matter, you add a war in Europe. And we're now operating in a really vastly different context. And then, in particular, in the U.S., you now have changes in the college eligibility system, where you know you can go straight to the transfer portal, don't have to take a year out, and also you've got um, changes in the way athletes are compensated on top of Title IX to begin with. So the context that we coach in is rapidly changing, and so at a time of peace and prosperity. Coaches and leaders in general, I think, could afford in many ways to have a kind of pace setter, leadership style. I've got the vision. Everyone follow me. Get on board. Follow me. Pretty much do what I say, and we'll get somewhere. And where we're getting is winning, generally. But now things have changed completely. Now there's so much variation in our context, so many variables at play that a pace setter, visionary, follow me kind of a style, I think it's completely outdated. It doesn't meet the needs of young people that are emerging into sport. And now what we need is an empathetic leadership style that takes on board divergent thinking, seeks out divergent thinking, seeks out the perspective of people from different communities, seeks out challenge, because no one of us anymore can possibly fully understand the context that we coach in. Those days are over. Like our generation, when we were kids, like we grew up in peace and prosperity, you know, life is pretty stable, but my children are growing up in a completely different context. So if a coach is in isolation, in my opinion, they are probably lacking the perspectives and the divergent thinking they need to fully understand the context they're coaching in. And therefore, the decisions they make are based on an incomplete picture of the situation. So if you're operating in isolation these days, I think you're doing yourself and your athletes at the service.
3: My question is for both of you it has to do with you hit on the importance of the staff, even working with a full staff, coaches still operate in isolation. My question to Alan, how are coaches, the mistakes they're making with their staff or the way they're maybe misusing their staffs? Because like you said, it feels like then they fall into this micromanagement where they're worried about so much. And they're so stressed and, you know, trying to handle everything that isn't necessarily important, but then it forces them to be isolated. What are ways or how do you feel that coaches are misusing their staffs?
0: Well, I think there's something that precedes that, Pat, that we should probably mention first. And that's, there's copious amounts of support out there for head coaches. Like, you know, for example, through my own experience, you get got a head coaching position with a national team. I had a lot of support when I became a head coach. Prior to that, I was an assistant coach. I didn't get any support other than what the head coach was expected to do in order to support me and did a great job. But he was doing it from his perspective, not from an informed place where he had been trained to help me fulfill my role as an assistant coach. So I think there's a bigger question, first of all, that what's in place for an assistant to be an effective assistant coach, but also what's in place for a head coach to make sure that he's facilitating the right things that are needed for that assistant coach to flourish. And I think often, as head coaches, we get jobs and then we're allowed to have a support staff of five members, two assistants, an and a physio, whatever. And the expectation is that we will manage that staff, but without any purposeful training. I think that's a big issue at hand. So I know from my own perspective, I look back on my head coaching years with the national team and wonder. Did I do it well? And what are the things I did well? What are the things I didn't do well? And it's still a subjective thought until I go to a Simon Turner or somebody else and say, well, you don't have an emotional attachment to my team. This is how I'm managing a staff. This is how I'm helping support my assistant coaches. What are your thoughts? And get someone else's perspective who's maybe thinking on a different level. So I do feel strongly that there is a massive gap there. Like, for example, if you dig up Google Scholar, and you pull out any study on coaching, it's everything's about the head coach. There's nothing about assistant coaches. There's no support, no studies being done on the role of an assistant coach or the role of a support staff. And that's a very limited area. And I think it's probably something we need to consider a bit more that we don't consider. So I'm going to ask you to go to Simon to answer the question you actually asked and get off my soapbox of let's train <laughs> assistant coaches better and let's help them more.
3: <laughs> Simon, yeah, my question is, as a head coach, who should you be looking to hire as your staff? Like you said, so you can avoid the isolation, but also be a coach in the context that we're currently working and living in.
2: Well, rule of thumb, Pat, is try not to hire coaches that look like you. You know, you probably won't go wrong there. So if we want divergent thinking in that stuff, then we're going to need a diverse range of people involved. That's much easier said than done in a lot of contexts. But people with a range of lived experience that differs from you as the head coach. Otherwise, you're likely to get agreement all the time. If you're basically just hiring a younger version of yourself, then that person is just likely to agree with you all the time and actually not really support you in the way that you need. You might get practical support, of course, and it could be a great coach that could know their tech tech brilliantly, but you won't get the kind of support you need because they won't understand your perspective because... They're just this, a mini version of yourself. And this is one of the challenges with the coaching tree. Like, is your coaching tree just, just does every branch pretty much look the same? Or is are there branches going off in different directions? Are you really spreading out the kind of people that give you input? That's a really important part of it. The second, I think, really noteworthy point is that mental health and mental well-being are increasingly Significant issues for all of us in society, for particularly anybody that's in a leadership role, anybody who has any sort of leadership role over a group of people, whether that's on the basketball court, on a football pitch, or in the workplace, or you're working with children or young people, mental health is an increasingly important issue. And it's one that we can't ignore. But we also can't support other people's mental health if our mental health, our own well being, is not in a good place. And the best way, To sabotage your own mental well-being as a head coach in particular is to be on your own, is to be up till one in the morning looking at video, is to be not present with your kids because you're thinking about out-of-bounds plays and to be thinking it's all on you and to not be sharing that kind of burden and then to have assistant coaches or support staff around you who you haven't chosen in a way that enables them to support you. So if we, as coaches, the first thing we've got to do is look after our own mental well-being. The best way to do that is to form connections with others. Then you've got the basis for then supporting the well-being people around you.
1: Simon, I'll stick with you on this one. What you guys do, I know, with movement is you guys have a cohort of 15 coaches that you're going to go through a whole year and work on the skills and whatnot and have true connections with that group. But maybe before we talk too much about that group and what you guys do, I'd love to ask about practical ways or things that let's say a a staff that isn't going to be reaching out to people across the world via the internet or whatnot, but just like a high school or a college staff of say four or five, six coaches, maybe practical ways that they can actually have better connections with themselves as a staff, as a group. Is it certain activities? Is it retreats? I mean, what would be some suggestions on ways coaches can do that?
2: Well, the first thing they should do is be intentional about the kind of climate or environment that they want to create. And that starts with the head coach. So actually getting together as a group of people and defining the culture that we want as a group of people, defining how we're going to work with each other, having that be a democratic and shared process. It's not the head coach imposing their values onto the group. And once you have that, you have the basis for psychological safety, you have the basis for somebody being willing to challenge. So if you don't have that, won't be able to deepen the connections because the connections between those people won't be authentic. They'll be largely influenced by the difference in power dynamic between all the people involved. So if you have a situation where the head coach is protecting their power and that their power is based on their position, not based on their relationships, it's just based on the title that's on their business card, then you're not going to have the basis for authentic connection. It's just not going to happen with the best women in the world. You can have all the meetings you want. You go out for coffee as often as you want. It's just not going to happen if the power dynamic is structured in that way and there's no awareness around that dynamic. So the first thing you've got to do is get together as a group of staff, go through some sort of exercise that enables everybody to literally write down on a piece of paper or a post-it note the kind of experiences they want to have in this group, the kind of values that are important to them, the ways they want to behave. There's one way you can do it, which is called asks and offers. So what are they asking from their fellow coaches and what are they offering to their fellow coaches to get that down on a piece of paper? And then that will form a kind of social contract, kind of social agreement between them that then provides that basis for openness. So if you can do that in the off-season and then keep it alive, somebody write it down, somebody take a photo of the final version, post it on your coach's WhatsApp group, bring it alive once a month. Say, hey coaches are we sticking to our social contract that we formed at the beginning of the season now you have the basis for kind of authenticity and real connection and then after that now you can go for coffee now you can go for a retreat now you can talk to each other after every practice but if you do all that without laying the foundation then you're on a really shaky ground to begin with and you just won't really form the authentic connections that you need
1: and love that answer, Simon. Maybe, Alan, if I could now ask this to you, and maybe just a, a little bit different way too, because I know you are coaching, you are on the floor quite a bit. In your opinion, how coaches and staffs can have a healthy power dynamic? So we talked about a democratic dynamic where everyone has a voice and feels safe and whatnot. But then also, how do you marry that with someone's got to be in charge in the locker room? The team looks to the eyes of the head coach to lead them so that There is a healthy dynamic between the head coach, assistants, and the staff, and it all kind of fits together.
0: Well, I think it's somewhat approached. like I'll build on what Simon said. So if we just pictured that we've gone through the process that Simon's just described and talk about, right, I've done that as a head coach. What's next? As well as what Simon talked about, just anchoring yourself back to what you agreed or revisiting it every month or just giving those reminders what we agreed every so often so it stays alive. But what fits inside that? I think we can align it to, there's a lot out there done around athlete-centered coaching. And that's from coach mm-hmm. to player, player to coach, an interdependent approach, co-creating stuff, however you want to term it. like. But everybody's quite familiar now about an athlete-centered approach to coaching. But how about we take that concept, we take that principle, and we say, we apply it to the actual dynamic between the head coach and their assistant coaches. If we were to ask that question, what would that look like if we take the concept of principle and apply it to that team, the coaching team, then we probably find the answer to what you're asking. So, for example, we finish a practice, we finish a game. I think what's easily done and traditionally done is the coaching staff get together and the head coach gives his or hers opinion of the game, the practice, and talks about what was good, what wasn't good. And the assistant coaches generally listen and maybe there's a lot of compliancy. But actually, a system or a strategy you could put in place is that at the end of that game, let's say there's three coaches, one head coach, two assistant coaches, all three go their separate ways and don't have any interactions and write down their thoughts and reflections on the game and then share them in a group after. So actually, it's not being led by the head coach and you're hopefully eliminating that power dynamic that Simon just talked about, that influential power dynamic that the head coach may have over the assistant coaches. I tried this system or this strategy with our national team for a couple of years and it worked really well, but I can have a biased opinion on that. To be honest, I have worked with those coaches for three or four years. So the relationship, it was built a long way before we ever got on court. So actually to get to that point was probably low hanging fruit for me, but I think that's one practical way you can do it and you can keep it alive. And then actually acting on what those coaches say, you know, so if the assistant coaches make a suggestion actually acting on it and following through with their suggestions and their thoughts does build that element of confidence and belief. The coach believes in me. Like I'm speaking to some assistant coaches at the moment and it's really amazing to hear their stories about how they feel their head coach believes in them. And it all comes back to that head coach standing back and allowing those assistant coaches to lead parts of practice, standing back and allowing the assistant coach to have a voice in the timeouts, to have a voice in the change room, to actually say, actually, no, Dan, can you actually talk to the group about what you said to me a while ago? And stepping back, actually completely stepping back. So I finished my response by saying, I think it'd be very interesting if we took those athlete-centered approaches, those athlete-centered principles that we have with the players and actually apply them to the coaching staff. I think we could come up with some really unique and amazing things that could enhance that connection.
3: Alan, for you, when you built the proper power struggle, maybe for reference, what does a, a healthy disagreement look like within a staff then? How is it solved? How is the communication within a staff?
0: I think the healthy disagreement becomes an acceptable dynamic if you've prepared for that before the disagreement. I think it goes back to some of the stuff Simon said. I'll give you an example of my own world pat if that helps. Yeah. Actually, my first time in position with the national team, I had a meeting with the two performance directors at the time and They asked me, do I have anything I want to ask? You know, you get to the usual end of the interview stuff or anything I want to discuss. And I planned to do this before I went in because I had experience working with those two performance directors when I was an assistant coach. And I said to them, I don't have any questions, but I have a point to raise. I I said, the only barrier to me doing this, if I am successful with this position, is I'm not clear on what your role is with my job as a head coach. So my purpose there was to establish complete clarity about where was the crossover or where was the line between the stuff I was doing as the head coach and where they would intervene as performance directors in terms of supporting me and in terms of helping me put on my terms to a degree. So, for example, having a post-game meeting with me half an hour after the game, if we may have lost in an important European championship game, wasn't going to work for me. So, it was establishing the boundaries before we actually got to that moment where it was going to be potentially hot or hostile or conflicting. So, I think you start there, Patrick. I think you start with actually setting your stall about we may have a difficult conversation throughout the season, but understanding the purpose, the value, and the parameters around it. And, you know, I think also doing that with your coaching staff, like setting that up beforehand and repping it. Like, so, like, I think as the relationship gets deeper and what things are you doing to deepen the relationship that could help also with those moments where the conversation can get a bit hot, especially in game where you don't have time to air your laundry and, you know, you got to put out that fire pretty quick and move on. Well, what have you done to that point that you can manage that moment in terms of deepening the connection within the relationship?
3: Simon, if we kind of circle back to well-being and say you formed the right set, there's a proper power structure. But as a head coach, you have the final decision. And, you know, if we incorporate to the win losses, you bear all that responsibility. So, what are ways you try to help a coach deal with this stress?
2: Yeah. So, if an athlete came to you complaining about their role in the team or how they're not getting the looks that they think they deserve on offense, if you took a sports psychology approach, you might say something along the lines of, Why don't you focus on the things you can control? Why don't you focus on your effort level? Why don't you focus on just getting open? You can't control whether or not the pass actually arrives to you, but you can control getting open. And then you might, if you really want to take it to the next level, you might say, well, how can you influence your teammates? What can you say to your point guard that might influence that person to look in your direction you're open? So the same applies to positioning head coach. So one of the first things we've got to do as a head coach is grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, draw three circles. The smallest circle is the circle of my control. The next circle is my circle of influence. And the biggest circle is my circle of concern. Right, Straight out of Stephen Covey and the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? This is a 30-year-old model. And focus on the things you can control, be aware of the things you can influence, and definitely do the best job you can of influencing. But anything outside of that, anything that's in your circle of concern, but not in your circle of influence or control, you have to just disregard. And an example of that might be the direction of the organization that you work for the decision-making of your performance director or your athletic director or the head of your school, whoever gave you the job, can't control some of the stakeholders. You, know, you can influence some of them, but you definitely can't control them. So they might be in the circle of concern as well. And just eradicating everything that's in the circle of concern, or at least not giving it your attention. And then within that, asking the question, how can you expand your circle of influence into your circle of concern? And so what are the personal skills that enable you to expand your circle of influence as well to give you a little bit more influence and therefore also a little bit more control over your environment? So focusing on the things you can control is a big first step. And then also we can never separate how we perform in our coaching from how we look after ourselves. I mean there's too many coaches who aren't active. This is a real irony. Work in sport, and we stop actually being active. We stop looking after ourselves because we're so busy coaching. You just can't coach your best if you're not looking after your own health. And then the third area I'd say is what's your reflective practice? What are you actually doing to reflect? What does that look like? Is it ranting to your partner when you get home? You know, is it talking to your assistant coach? Is it, do you write things down? Like, what actually do you have a structured reflective practice? What does that look
3: like? Simon, just a little bit more on that reflective practice. Are there practices you think are better than others or is it just important that you do something like you said, whether you write it down or whether you talk to your significant other doesn't matter. It's just you got to at least have a reflective practice.
2: The first thing is to be an intentional designer of that reflective practice, to not be reactionary. So to actually sit down independent of your wins and losses maybe in the off-season and think about what's my practice going to be this year. Am I going to write something down? Who am I going to go to? Okay, once a month, I'm going to phone that guy, Alan King, because I know he's always up for a chat. I'm going to write things down in my notebook once a week. And then on a Sunday night, I'm going to talk with my partner just about my week coach. So there's three things I'm going to do. In the last 10 seconds, I've just designed a reflective practice and I've been intentional about it as opposed to be complete reactionary, not having a structure, not having a scaffolding to
0: work with until it's kind of too late. Can I just add to that? Go ahead, yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, again, the, the wave is rising, isn't it? And it's really positive that we're hearing more about reflection in coaching now than we've heard. You ask a coach, what do you do to improve? What's your self-development plan kind of thing? Well, I do a lot of reflection. And I think it's brilliant. And the wave is definitely rising. However, there's a very, very important aspect, whatever framework you use, and Simon just came up with one in 10 seconds there, and obviously movement, we have of our resources. But if you're keeping those reflections for yourself, and you know they're not shared with another, I don't want to say they're not of value, but you're lessening the value. So whether you share that with A partner, your assistant coaches, your staff, and how you do that, I think is really important as well. But actually sharing those reflections is where this becomes really fruitful and the real place for growth and development can take place. And who you share it with then becomes the game changer. So can you imagine I had this guy as my assistant coach this year? Can you imagine the depth of the (laughs) questioning? Like, And can you imagine my reflections being shared with this guy? I mean, God, gosh, but anyway... Point being, you've got to be sharing the reflections and then the game changers, who you're sharing them with, like who will see things differently to you or what will they read. Share it with a non-basketball person. Here's my reflections on my game coaching that you came to watch and it's your partner, your wife, your husband, whoever. Really interesting to get a non-basketball person's perspective on your reflections as well.
1: If I could tie a couple of these things together here in this question, and maybe Alan will stay with you to start and Simon obviously jump in. When we talk about mental health and the wellness of the head coach or in the assistants too, but when it comes to winning and being able to say, as the four of us sitting on a podcast, hey, let's you know focus on the things that really matter, not so much on the wins and losses is great. But then there's a lot of coaches whose jobs are on the line if they don't win next season or at the end of a game, it's the head coach's name that's in the paper. And right next to it is the score, whether they won or whether they lost. And sort of living with that. So being able to say, okay, wellness, mental health, the staff dynamic it's all really great but at the end of the day that score is there the record is there and a lot of times you know men and women's jobs are on the lines if they don't perform to a certain standard so for you guys how do you help marry all those three things together so that there is a healthy head coach when it comes to living with all of that stuff
0: well i'm going to answer it from my perspective dan i think to start with so for example if I'm in a position or if I'm in a club or an organization where my job is on the line and you know it could affect other aspects of my life, such as my family, I may not take that job. I may not take that offer or I may not apply for that job knowing if we lose two games in a row, I don't know if I've got an income next month or I don't know if I've got a job next month. So I think from the personal perspective, what are you willing to stay away from, walk away from that aligns to your values as a coach? You're back to why, you know, you talk about our movement model, like starting with why you coach or one of the blocks, starting with why you coach, who you coach. And I think that's the first step you have to take. After that, if you're in that position, I think it takes us back to a conversation we had a while ago. If I was to put myself in that position, I would have to have a very transparent conversation and agreement with the powers that be before the season starts to get complete transparency, what does success look like? For this organization, what does failure look like for this organization? And actually, you get a professional job, you're delighted, you jump straight in two feet, but you don't know what you're jumping into. So I think the first step is actually finding out what is this all about? What's their expectations? Where's the boundaries lie? What's the parameters for X, Y, and Z? What happens if we lose two games in a row? What happens if our star player gets injured? Are we able to replace him? Do we have a budget? So unpicking all this, knowing of what you're getting into before you get into it, and then you can live with your decision. Then you can live with the wins and the losses. Then you can live with whatever comes your way because you've established complete transparency before you jump in. I think that goes a long way towards your mental well-being as a coach. It's the surprising stuff that pops up, the things you didn't expect. Suddenly you lost three games in a row. You've been called into the office. And the owner and the management are questioning your ability to coach the team. Well, I didn't know that was coming. So now my mental health and well-being is being fired at here massively because I wasn't prepared for this conversation. But preseason, if we've had this meeting with the owners, the organization, and they're saying to us, look, if you lose three games in a row, it could get a little hot in this office. So when we do lose three games in a row and they call me up, I know what's coming. Mentally, I'm more prepared for that, which could help my mental health and well-being. Now, it's always going to go back to aligning to what are your values as a coach. What are you willing to accept? What are you willing to walk away from? So that would be my perspective on it. Simon, I'll pass over to you.
2: I think it's worth distinguishing between two types of pressure, two sources of pressure, internal and external. When we hear about the pressure to win, coaches are often talking about the athletic director, the stakeholders, the parents, the culture of the club or school that they're in. As if the pressure to win is solely external. Let's face it, that's not always the case, is it? There's also an internal pressure within the coach that they want to win. So, the external pressure, you may not be able to do anything about that, can potentially influence it, but you may not be able to do anything about it. But the internal pressure to win, that is something that you can develop a deeper understanding of through self reflection. So, if I was in a position where a coach came to me and wanted to discuss this topic, the first thing I would do is use some open questions to try to help them to understand for themselves what pressure they're putting on themselves to win. So, for example, coaching sport puts us in a position of being externally judged because it's very easy to make a snap judgment about whether that coach is being successful because there's literally numbers on the sport which measure your success or failure. So it's understandable then that the person that's responsible for that would have some status and some identity issues and some confidence issues and some self-worth issues connected to that scoreboard. I think it's inevitable. The most self-aware, secure coach in the world is still not immune to the internal pressure they put on themselves to win. And that's where I would go with a coach is let's actually bottom that out. And some of them may get to a point where they realize on reflection that actually some of the pressure they feel to win is self-imposed and it's connected to their idea of social status, their feeling of being in a social hierarchy amongst other coaches, the feelings connected to being judged by other coaches and by other stakeholders. And if we can get to the bottom of that and reconcile that, I think that can actually relieve a lot of the pressure. To win. And then you're in a strong, stable basis to see the external pressure for what it is and not have your sense of worth be heavily impacted by those external pressures. And it makes it easier to walk away if you need to at that point because your sense of identity is intact.
1: I could follow up with you real fast, Simon. When you're assisting or helping coaches kind of get to the bottom of some of these feelings and sort out external versus internal and all that, is it A matter of accepting things the way that they are like accepting that there's going to be this pressure accepting you know the score is going to be in the paper or is it more working on boundaries i won't say total avoidance of them but just not letting them get to a place where they worry about these things as much i mean what's the balance of letting things come in and accepting them versus don't worry about them they're
2: not a part of what you should be thinking about well you have to ask yourself what do i want to treat do i want to treat the symptoms or the cause so the symptoms are those smaller external factors going on social media and seeing judgment. So the way you can reduce the symptoms is to avoid social media. And sometimes that's got to be done. That's a healthy way to approach things. But really, what's the cause? And the cause comes down to I suggest kind of two things. It's expectations internally and expectations externally. Can't control the external expectations, but can do the self-work necessary reconcile and understand your own motivations for coaching in the first place. So this gets to the question of why I coach. A lot of coaches will talk about why they coach in terms of they want to be successful. I coach because I want to win, or they might talk about I'll coach because I want to help people, and that's great. But there's also, independent of those things, there is a reason why I coach, which is connected solely to me, which is about how does coaching meet my needs as a person, as an individual? There is something in there. And answering that question, how does coaching my needs as a person is a reflective practice, which can help you improve all aspects of your coaching, and just make you happier, and improve your well-being. I think as a coach, it's hard work, man. It's hard work, real hard work. You don't just like sit down. Okay, it's Sunday afternoon. I'm going to decide why I coach. <laughs> what? Why does <laughs> yeah. coaching? Mean? What does coaching mean to me? Like it just doesn't work like that. You know, you may never get there.
3: You're going to need a couple of beers for that.
2: You are. You're going to need yeah. a couple of beers <laughs> yeah, for <that>. sure. <laughs> And hey, you raised the point right at the beginning of our conversation, moving from isolation to connection, doing that process entirely on your own without bouncing off of somebody else is really difficult. But if there's somebody you trust who you can bounce these ideas off and be vulnerable with in a safe space, then that's going to really help
1: you. The next big game or Jonas Brothers concert you attend? Enjoy $20 off from our partners at SeatGeek, the web's largest event ticket search engine. Enter the code slappingglass at checkout to receive the discount on your first order with SeatGeek today. Thanks for the support, and now back to our conversation. We'd like to transition now into a segment we call Start, Sub, or Sit. We give you free basketball or Leadership topics. Ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one, and then we're gonna do this a little bit differently since we got the two of you on here. We're gonna do it the way they do in the newlywed game, where we're gonna ask Alan what we think Simon's answer would be, and then Simon will let you, you know, chime in on what the actual right answer is from your point of view, and then we'll flip it the other way. So we got one for the each of you, then we'll dive in. So, you guys ready to give this a shot?
2: This could be dangerous. Go for it.
1: <laughs> yes, good. So. What we're going to do is the first one's going to be, Alan, I'm going to ask you what you think Simon's answer will be to this first question. And then Simon, you can give us the correct answer after we're done. So this is going to be start, sub, or sit. What Simon thinks are the most common coaching hangups. So these are three different qualities that a coach might have that stymies their growth or their development as a coach the start would be this is the worst thing that you see a coach having that doesn't allow them to grow all right so start sub or sit stubbornness anger or
0: arrogance wow okay <laughs> i'm glad you guys came in on the foundational level and we're gradually going to get harder as we goes <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think good gosh i think so start being the. Biggest hang up, let's say. Yeah. I think he'll start arrogance. Okay. I'm going to explain each one after I give them to you. Is that okay? Sure. Right. So we're starting arrogance. We're going to sub stubbornness. Okay. And we're going to sit anger. Maybe that's surprising. So the reason I said arrogance as a starter was how can I put this? I think that's a longer characteristic trait to overcome. Than stubbornness and anger. And I think when someone's arrogant, like how many years have they repped that trait, that characteristic? And in order to help somebody go on a journey of enhancing their self-awareness, to overcome their arrogance, I think takes a longer time, a lot more investment. And Simon just talked about a lot more emotional labor to help somebody who's got a, a level of arrogance to them. And there's obviously depths and levels to that. So that was my starter. My sub was stubbornness because... I think that just takes like Simon's really good at this, like in terms of his ability to listen, his patience threshold from what I've seen is pretty solid. So I think he's built to actually withstand somebody's stubbornness and give them the space and time that they need before he actually strategically intervenes to help that somebody again, see what the reality is and not hide behind the stubbornness, let's say. I'm describing myself this year and how he's (laughs) approaching me in some stubborn moment. (laughs) And then the last one was anger because I think that's a snapshot. That's like a gust of wind that's going to pass some point soon. So I think arrogance is by far the difficult one because it's deep rooted and the journey, the emotional labor that's attached to helping somebody raise their level of self-awareness to overcome their arrogant barriers, I think is huge. But the other two are are a bit more short-lived. That's a Simon Turner answer there for you. (laughs) (laughs) 0.001 version
1: (laughs) okay well well said i love that uh let's turn now, simon how close was he
2: yeah some good rationale there i'm not sure my 13 year old daughter would agree i've got a high patience threshold (laughs) Um, but but in some contexts i guess they do yeah some solid logic behind that i can understand the perspective of arrogance being a difficult trait to overcome because arrogance is many times it's based on a misunderstanding of how we're perceived which is a difficult thing to overcome to really put yourself in some issues to view yourself in the way other people view you is incredibly different you know we'll never get there fully i would start anger though okay. i define anger i think it's brene brown that defines anger as fear expressed so we become angry when we encounter something that fears most And that's that fear coming to the surface. It's a way of protecting ourselves. We're in a moment of extreme fear. And so we get angry as a way of protecting ourselves. Millions of years ago, that would have been necessary. You fear the lion. uh, So, you know, you drum up some anger and the adrenaline goes through you and you fight to the death. That's not so appropriate anymore, but the same traits are in place. The same responses are in place. So, for example, if a player gets angry about a referee call, ask yourself, what are they fearing in that situation? Are they fearing that the alternative is they made the mistake? They travel, they committed the offensive foul. They shouldn't have made the decision to go all the way to the rim. They should have kicked out that pass to the corner earlier. Instead, they picked up that offensive foul. And if that's the case, then what does that say about them? What's the meaning behind that for that player? If that player has some insecurities about their ability to score or wants to uphold a perception of them as a flashy offensive player, then in that moment, what they fear is they're not perhaps as good as other people want them to be or as good as they they feel they should be. And that fear manifests itself in anger. So I'll blame the referee because that deflects the attention away from my bad decision. Because my bad decision means I might not be as good as I want to be. And that might diminish my status amongst my social peers.
1: Love it. So how close was he then? You got anger, you guys were off. What would have been your start subset, Simon?
2: So I would have started anger, and then I would have subbed arrogance, and then I would sit stubbornness. Okay. So
0: bottom line is, we just met. And <laughs> yeah, I. We have no yeah, idea yeah. who each other <laughs> It's
3: divergent thinking right here. Yeah, exactly. I <laughs> yeah, 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 yes. sure
0: you guys bring us together. Maybe he could be my assistant coach yeah. next season. That's <laughs> yeah, a great
3: link. <laughs> Love it. So, <that>. Yes. <laughs> Simon, my question is, and I think when me and Dan were coming up with this question, kind of an overarching theme was the ego. And what is a healthy ego in a coach? Well, if
2: an ego is the sense of self as being different, from others as being separate, special from others, then a healthy ego might be an appreciation for the unique contribution of others. So Alan, I think, could describe this really well because I've heard you, Alan, talk about ego in a positive context. You're confident too. When you coach, when you talk about coaching, you're really confident. So I wonder how you might approach this because I think you've got a healthy ego, assuming we've got the same definition of
0: ego. I was just about to say, it's like everything though, isn't it? Like, what's the language we're using? How is it interpreted by the people we're speaking to? Like you said, is our definition of ego a positive or a negative? Because for the vast majority, ego is perceived as negative. But actually, ego can help. I've worked with whatever are the classes, egotistical players for years on the national team. And actually, they needed that to survive where we were going in short windows of European championships, this a certain level of ego allowed them to actually go for what was in front of them and not hold back. And because if you hold back at that environment, you're crucified, game's over, balls taken out of your hands, or you're blown by, or you're blown the layup. Whereas it's actually a certain level of ego, which comes from actually confidence from the coaching staff, and there's no fear of failure. So ego is it an acceptable level of self-belief. Is healthy ego an acceptable level of self-efficacy. Because that's how I would describe it. So Simon described me as having a healthy ego. I have a healthy level of, of self-belief in my ability to coach a group of people. And I, I have that because of years of self-reflection. I have that from years of asking people like Simon, Vladin, Mark, and different people for their perspectives on my delivery, asking the players. Now Simon's helped me to find a better way to ask the players, but asking the players for their perceptions on my delivery. So, that's helped me to have a certain level of confidence and belief in what I'm doing, which I would describe as a healthy ego. So, I think there's a correlation between healthy ego and self efficacy and the appropriate level of self belief.
1: And if I could just pop in real fast here, interestingly, you know, Simon, you started anger and Alan, you sat anger on this. So, Alan, I'll start with you here first, though, because it's interesting if anger, in your guys' opinion, actually could be useful in certain instances. You know, you mentioned kind of like a gust of wind coming through, Alan. And I know, you know, as a head coach being on the floor, sometimes a channeled or a controlled anger can help motivate, can help stimulate a team, can help motivate yourself. Do you see instances where anger can actually be useful to a certain degree?
0: I would have said to you a couple of years ago, that Yes if it's calculated. However, I've pivoted 180 on that. I never want to walk into a change room and display anger. And I think we've got to be clear that anger is not passion. Uncontrollable passion can be anger. But if you're going in there to enhance somebody's belief in themselves, you don't do it through anger. You might raise your voice and you might take command in the room to say, come with me, I will lead you for a period. And then you take flight but that's not done through a place of anger. That's done through a place of belief, passion. And it can come through in how we pitch our voice and how our body language may be. Whereas I think we see a lot of anger displayed on the sideline from coaches. It's actually packaged as passion. It's not really passion. It's somebody who's lost control of their actions. It's somebody who's lost control of their emotions. It's not passion. I struggle at times to hear people describe it as she or he or they are passionate coaches. What I see as an angry coach, and I have displayed that, I'm not going to be on a pulpit here because I'm human and I'm going to lose control of my emotions at times It's a human characteristic. It's just that, what am I going to do after it? The people I got angry to, am I going to approach the after and say, can I speak to you? I want to apologize for how I behaved in that game and that practice because I think I crossed the line and I'd like to have a chat with you about it because for me, my values and how I was raised, that's the right thing to do is to acknowledge when I would feel like I've done something wrong and share that with the person who I think I've had the wrong doing with. So I think we've got to be careful then. I think it's anger is too often packaged as passion. And I don't think that's fair.
1: And Simon, to you too, just when working with coaches, is it that you help them deal with the anger in a healthy way or get to a place where you're more stoic with things? You know, How do you view helping someone that maybe potentially has anger
2: issues Well, first, we have to develop a shared definition of anger. And the definition I shared earlier was it's an outward expression of an inner fear. So if the coach wants to be less angry, then by that definition, they actually need to be working on their fears, understanding their fears and their responses to those fears. And then the anger or lack thereof tends to take care of itself once perhaps have some self-awareness around the things that we fear. When I see anger on the court, I frequently see an expression of fear by a coach, a fear that I might not be as good a coach as I want to be, a fear that I might not have the status that I actually have. And so I've got a fear that I might not have the status that I want. And so I have to protect myself against that. So if the referee makes a bad call, then it's the referee's fault for our performance, not mine. Therefore, I'm still a good coach. My self-worth is still intact. It's not questioned. If it's the player's fault that they didn't execute what I drew up, then it's not me that's performing badly. It's them. And so it's a way of protecting my own self-worth and my status again as a coach. So when I see an angry coach, you know, I see somebody who has a lot of fear. The exception to that is somebody extreme to hate maybe in the high levels of european basketball or sometimes college basketball or, or, or even lower down and and that sometimes in those cases it's less about fear and more about just that person in those kind of cases it's frequently less about that person expressing fear and more about them being a complete and total asshole <laughs> and there's, there's a distinction
3: yes yes absolutely <laughs> absolutely all right pat okay <laughs> i'm going to be asking Simon, for what you think Alan's response will be. And the question is, measuring a coach's impact on a player, and we'll put it after season. You've gone through a season. How would Alan measure his impact on a player? Would it be start, subset, looking at their attitude, their effort, or their resiliency?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I think that Alan would start with uh, resilience because I think He would view resilience as a gradual deepening of your ability to respond in the way you want to, to whatever situations you're in. So it would reflect the kind of highest level of growth amongst those three things, because it's a response to adversity. I think he would sub attitude, because attitude implies also a proactive approach to a situation, implies a mental response to a particular set of circumstances. I think it's sit effort because in some ways effort is kind of low-hanging fruit. We can get changes in effort fairly quickly if we are to. Uh, whereas changes in resilience and to a lesser extent attitude are much harder to come by.
1: Okay. Alan, <laughs> how do you do
0: Can I just start with saying when you're a head coach, you generally stand in front of or sit at the top of the bench, and you don't necessarily see what's over your left shoulder or your right shoulder, depending where they're sitting. And you definitely don't have eyes in the back of your head. I don't care if you were a point guard or not as a head coach. You don't have eyes in the back of your head. So Simon sees me a lot more than I see him. (laughs) So if he's getting this right, he may have more information about me than I have about him. Right. So my start would be measuring a coach's impact on a player when you get to the end of the season resilience is one of the biggest how do you coach somebody to be more resilient what a question and somebody whoever answers that well and has the formula please reach out I'll leave my phone number at the end of this but coaching resilience like you know we hear it all the time and it's such a rabbit hole of a conversation and I think it often goes in the wrong direction like what is resiliency and sport what does it mean for somebody to be resilient I think Simon summed it up well they're talking about your response or your ability to endure some adverse moment and i think it's the hardest thing and again you go into the pressure cooker of professional sports or the pressure cooker of a european championship or a playoff game generally the players that are most resilient end up performing the best because they are full of adverse moments and every year for a long time i was like most national team coaches, criticized on one or two players you would select to bring to the European Championships, you'd always get criticized because you can't keep everybody happy. And if I was asked at a conference one time, what's your selection criteria for the national team? What sits above all the tech because They're all physical. They're all technical proficient. They're all tactically proficient, well, for the most part. Uh, they're all physically outstanding. I used to always set my criteria around Who's the bravest player in this team? Who are the bravest players? And bravest, basically, meaning who will not shy away from those challenges? Who will go for it regardless of how difficult it gets? And who'll still be standing kind of thing from a mental perspective when we're into the second round and they're burnt out? And, you know, there's a lot of adverse moments. So resilience, 100%, is a long way ahead of the other two for me. Okay. In terms of subsit, he got it right. I think effort's low hanging fruit. It is low hanging fruit. You can influence somebody with more effort. I think a lot easier. Attitude as well. I don't think attitude is a difficult one, guys. I mean, if you get down to understanding who you're coaching, you know, do they see purpose and value in what you're coaching? If you can get them to see purpose and value in what you're coaching and what you're doing, I think you could redirect their attitude quite easy. It's just not expecting them to do it just because you said it. It's actually winning their hearts and minds so they actually can see value in it or not, and then you're looking at probably changing the player at some levels.
3: Alan, if I change the question a little bit and open it up, how do you measure your impact on the team then at the end of the season? Is it just the goals we reached? when you look back and said, I impacted this team in this area, or how did I impact this team?
0: Well, I'll tell you how we're doing it now. Simon, I'm going to talk a bit about the pair climate here because it's the answer to your question, basically, Pat. So the impact on the team won't come from and i used to do this i used to until i found a better way like all coaching evolution we used to bring the players in one by one do exit interviews used to you know i still do the statistics stuff like you know depending on the platform you have you break down the style of game and blah 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 blah, and you write your report but actually to measure the real impact the biggest rock in that jar is actually finding out how the players felt about their relationships with each other their connections and interactions with each other. And I'll talk about how in a moment, but let me tell you the what first. So it's getting data and information as accurately as possible on the level of care that the player has for another player within that team of 12 to 15 guys, 15 players, females, if you coach females. The second aspect of that is getting data and information as close to reality as possible about how those players feel about the coach the relationship between those players and the coach? How did they feel about me as a person? And then the third aspect, the final aspect of that is finding out, getting data and as much information as you can as possible, as close to reality as possible, about how the players feel about the environment, the practice sessions, the games, and then questions inside that our stuff around so second phase talked about my relationship with them describe your coach at his best describe your coach at his worst what does it look like sound like feel like the third aspect is describing how much does your coach accept ideas from you as a player you know how much does your coach talk in practice and it's all like on a the scale you know it's a survey it's an anonymous survey basically And it's some of the stuff we're doing with other clients that we're working with in movement, but we're adapting this in our club here in in Birmingham, so this is the best way for me to find out if I've had an impact. And having gone through this process with other coaches who I don't have any emotional attachment to, so support clients we have, it's been really rich to see what kind of information comes out of that when you don't have to sit the player in front of you and ask the questions on an exit interview or the player doesn't have to put their name their email or their contacts, they don't have to identify themselves on an end-of-year evaluation form when it's done anonymously. And then if it's done through a third party, such as Simon as myself coming in to do it, say for your team, Dan or Pat, it eliminates the other complete power dynamic because there's no attachment to us. There's no emotional attachment between them and us with your team. So that's how I would truly measure it. That's the most effective method for me. The stats, the style of game, the wins, the losses, the free throw percentage, my use of timeouts, how effective were those timeouts, what were the value of those timeouts, all that stuff. Yeah, I still geek it out. Like, you know, I sent one of my season, previous season, not this one, just gone the season before. I sent those guys who were on our membership group, just a template of how I used to do it. And, you know, they came back and felt it was quite thorough. I've geeked it out. I've gone down the whole offense, defense, but I did a whole section on cohesion, how was our cohesiveness as a group, all subjective thoughts. Actually, if I could go back and do it again, I'd have put in a lot of those questions into an anonymous survey for the players to talk about the cohesiveness within the group. Who am I to judge the cohesiveness? I wasn't in the changing room with them all the time. I didn't yeah. go to the pub after with these guys. You know, I didn't walk into the gym together and catch a, dr- a ride with them. You know, So that's how I think it's the most effective way is.
3: Alan, the same way... As a coach, you know, after so many games or halfway through the season, like you said, we'll look at stats. One is, what do we do well? Why are we winning? Maybe why are we losing? Why are we having a rough spot? Would you do this anonymous survey periodically or even in the middle of a season to, like you said, have a better understanding of your team of why we are where we are now
0: and where we want to go? Well, if you look at it from a kind of a micro cycle, macro cycle, why not do it in your practice sessions? Like, you know, I'm not talking about physically auditing what you're doing, but actually get to the point in practice where you're auditing, you're thinking about what's the value of what we've done. Should we pivot or am I anchored to the session plan? Same way with this anonymous survey. Why wait till the end of the season when you can do nothing about it? You got to wait till next season to implement the data and the feedback and the suggestions you got, or I have to wait till next season to be a less angry coach because my players said that I was demonstrative and I was angry and i was too controlling, and I didn't give them enough of a voice and a choice. I asked them questions, but I didn't respect their responses. Why wait till the end of the season to deal with that and sit on it for three or four months and be regretful? So doing it actually, why not do it two months into the season so the next two months you can start to pivot if necessary? Ideally, I would say it's just throwing it out there like four times a year is probably the ideal, depending on your season.
1: Well, guys, you're off the Start, sub, or sit, hot seat. Thanks for playing. That was a lot of fun. You guys, there's good cohesion here. There yeah. really is.
0: Yeah. There's <laughs> absolutely no cohesion in one direction, <laughs> yeah. but we maximized it in the yeah. other direction, so we're somewhere balanced. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, guys, thank you once again. We've got one more closing question for you each, but before we close, this was a really great conversation today. So thanks for the time yeah. and
0: all your thoughts. Thank you. Uh, brilliant. No, thank you guys, man. This is awesome. Every episode's awesome. So thank you for having us on, guys. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Okay. So we'll start with Simon on this question. And it's a closing question that we ask all the guests. And it's what's the best investment that you have made in your career?
2: Nothing to do with coaching, I'll tell you that. Because I want to be a different coach. So one of the great things about working with Alan is he reads every coaching book. There is So therefore, I don't have to. (laughs) So, you know, I make a point of of not reading those same books because then we'd be converging in our thinking. So the best investments I've made are outside of coaching thinking, which enable me to then bring that kind of thinking into my coaching. So the first thing that jumps to mind is an assessment of my own personal strengths. So coaches can go do this themselves. It's called the Clifton Strengths Finder. You Google Clifton Strengths Finder, you'll find it. It costs, I don't know, $50 or something, or $35. It's not the well world. Hopefully coaches out there could afford it. And it's a, a series of questions. Uh, it takes quite a long time to complete. It's hardcore. It's been done by thousands and thousands of people. It's based on a lot of psychology, of course. And you get back a kind of hierarchy of strengths. Which then broken into different categories and it forms the basis for self reflection and conversation. And if you do it with another person, it's even better because then you talk about your strengths. My, my wife and I did it. Turns out we are pretty much opposite. So, you know, <laughs> we, but we have to make it work. Yeah. Her number one was harmony. So I think that explains uh, yeah. <laughs> our marriage. And so, an understanding of my strengths is probably the best investment I've ever made because not only did it give me confidence. And self awareness, but it also helped me to reframe my weaknesses. So I don't think about weaknesses anymore. I think about the overplay of my strengths. So if I overplay one of my strengths, it becomes something of a weakness. So I'm visionary. I'm always looking ahead, I'm always looking at the big picture. But if I don't take people with me on that journey, if I overplay that while a player just wants to know how they should be defending the post, and I'm talking about existential dilemmas about, well, how does your post defense affect your mental well being? <laughs> yeah. Then, you know, that player is, I've lost that that yeah. player <laughs> real, real quickly, right? So I have to be really careful not to overplay my strength in that area. So, yeah, recommended to coaches. Google it Clifton Strengths Finder. Awesome. No.
1: Great stuff. And Alan, we'll close with you. Same question.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'd second that Strengths Finder, guys, and then overplaying your strengths. That was really an eye opener for me. But, I think the most valuable investment that's impacted my coaching, if I can phrase it that way, has been a a movement playbook and movement practice. I'm joking. I was (laughs) going to say the the movement Uh, research. You know, I was thinking about, as Simon was talking, I was thinking, I actually don't know, but I knew what I would have said to you a couple of years ago. I would have said to you like a GoPro, you know, so I could record my practices in action. But actually, I think what's helping me most these days, guys, and it's not, I haven't invested in this in recent time is my dog. I go on dog walks. Mm -hmm. It's actually investment of time away from, like Simon's right. I read, I listen to podcasts. I probably listen to every single one of yours, by the way. And it's what I do. But on my dog walks, I do that. But I'm out, I'm walking. And I don't always listen to podcasts. I'll switch off. And those moments every morning are really valuable to me. It's fresh air. It's time away from everything. And so I'm investing time in myself. I like to go to the gym. If I don't get to the gym, I'm in the gym in two days. So I'm a little bit cranky today for that reason. And the reason is I want to keep that space for me and me only. So an investment of time is what I've done. I've invested in time for me. And if that didn't cost me anything, but it is taking me still discipline to do it because it's too easy. To open up another like i'm reading academic papers on a regular basis because i have to but also because it stimulates me i'm listening to podcasts because i want to and i feel i need to but i don't need to but i feel i need to but actually being disciplined and say no i'm actually gonna go out for a walk leave the pods at home and not listen to a podcast this morning that's the best investment for my coaching
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back <laughs> slapping glass, <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that.
3: Good. I <laughs> slapping glass.